Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Greetings and salutations, scholar warriors, and welcome to episode 154 of the Dangerous History Podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to David Ramsey Steele, who is a libertarian speaker and writer and is the author of a number of books, including From Marx to Mises and Atheism Explained, Three-Minute Therapy and Therapy Breakthrough. Dr. Steele is editorial director of Open Court Publishing Company, and he is the author of the book relatively recently published that is the subject of our conversation today, which is Orwell, Your Orwell, A Worldview on the Slab. This book is not a biography of George Orwell. What it is is a dissection of Orwell's beliefs and ideologies and how those, in some cases, changed over time, and also a debunking of the ways that George Orwell is commonly perceived and depicted in a lot of previous work done on him. But before I get into my conversation with David Ramsey Steele, I have some housekeeping to take care of. First off, I just want to urge everybody to please, if you are doing any holiday shopping for anything on Amazon, please consider going through any of my Amazon affiliate links on profcj.org, dangeroushistorypodcast.com. Either will get you to the same place. And if you buy stuff from Amazon after first going through any of my Amazon links, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. Secondly, if you're looking for stock audio or visual or audiovisual material for your own productions of videos, podcasts, or whatever, please consider looking at Pond5, which is where I've gotten a lot of the music I've used in this show, particularly the music I've used throughout the Not-So-Civil War series, music that many of you have complimented me on and asked me about. Pond5 is a great source for royalty-free audio and visual stock material, including music, that you just do a one-time purchase and then you can use it in your own productions and not have to worry about paying additional royalties. And if you go through the Pond5 affiliate link found on my website and then buy some stuff, I get a commission from that, again, at no additional cost to you as well. Also, I want to draw attention, as I always do, to Patreon. Please consider going to patreon.com slash profcj and signing up to support the Dangerous History Podcast at five bucks per month or more. And if you do that, not only do you get access to bonus episodes there that are available nowhere else, but you'll also get early and ad and announcement slash thank you sort of stuff, free versions of regular DHP podcast episodes as well. And you'll also be eligible to join our private Facebook group, if you support the Dangerous History Podcast at five bucks per month or more. And again, I just want to mention that I do have a goal set on Patreon right now, and that is to get up to 1500 bucks per month. And if I can do that, I can then step away from teaching summer school, and that will free up almost an additional two months of my time to devote to the DHP and other related projects I have in mind but simply haven't been able to work on due to lack of time. 
So please consider stepping up to support the show if you're not doing so already. And speaking of which, I do have one thank you. One individual has stepped up since the last episode that I recorded. Big thank yous go out to Raymond, who has been a longtime supporter of the show and then briefly uh, had to step away and then is back. So Raymond, welcome back. Great to have you back. And again, I hope the rest of you listening will consider supporting the show via Patreon if you're not already doing so. Also, in regard to this episode, special thanks to DHP listener and supporter Lee for recommending this book to me and putting me in touch with Dr. Steele in order to have this conversation. Okay, on to my conversation with David Ramsey Steele about the intellectual history of George Orwell. David Ramsey Steele is my guest on the Dangerous History Podcast today, and he's the author of several books, most recently the book Orwell, Your Orwell, A Worldview on the Slab, which digs into the beliefs of Eric Blair, of course better known as George Orwell, and this book takes a contrarian view of a lot of the usual portrayal of Orwell's beliefs on many important issues and which also places those beliefs into the historical context of the time in which Orwell lived and wrote. So it's a very interesting book. And David, thank you for talking with me today. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Orwell, you're Orwell. Like I said, it's a very interesting book for anyone into this sort of intellectual history. And my own familiarity with Orwell is it's probably a little bit more than most Americans, but it's not a huge amount more. Um, just by way of background, of course, I've read The Big Two, 1984 and Animal Farm, um, multiple times on those. And I've read a few of his shorter essays and articles. You know, I've read things like Shooting an Elephant, but I've not read any other full books of his besides those those two most famous ones. And I've read, I think, a few excerpts from The Road to Wiggum Pier, but I've not read the whole thing. Although, on the other hand, when I was in graduate school, I actually did a fair amount of work on modern Britain and the British Empire, where, of course, I encountered Orwell and a lot of his contemporaries and all that. So, you know, I have, a, I have probably a little bit more background in the context of the things you're talking about than a lot of Americans. But at the same time, uh, that said, I, I still learned a lot of new things from this book. So I found it very interesting. Um, Good. I'm, what, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yes, yes. Um, what got you interested in delving so deeply into George Orwell's beliefs, kind of culminating in writing this book? What what really got you interested in him and his beliefs as a topic? Well, I, I've been familiar with Orwell's uh, writings very broadly, you know, his essays and reviews and so on, as well as his more famous works for, for a long time. Uh, uh, a collection, a, pr a pretty full collection of his writings came out in the 1960s, and I, um, I read that for sheer pleasure, I think, at the time. One of the things that actually prompted me to start writing something about Orwell was that I kept encountering things that I thought were mistaken interpretations of his outlook. And, uh, you know, I thought it would be a good idea to try and correct these. And I actually wrote a, a review of Christopher Hitchens' book on 
Orwell's a few years ago when that came out, which uh, Hitchens embodies some of the misconceptions about Orwell. But also there's the general, you know, I, I in the 1960s, I was a socialist uh, and became a libertarian around about 1971. And um, so I'm very much involved personally in the history of socialism in Britain uh, and things like that that relate directly to Orwell. So it's a, it's a very, it's familiar terrain, a lot of it to me, you know, what the Communist Party was doing and saying in Britain in the 1930s is something that I'm very familiar with. Okay, well, let's start in kind of broad brush strokes. And how would you summarize the standard portrayal of Orwell? And then how would you, you know, su- summarize the standard portrayal and perception of his beliefs and then how does your book challenge that standard portrayal? Well, there are actually, I think, um, several standard portrayals which relate to just how familiar the holders of these views, interpretations are with Orwell. I think that, um, I mean, one of the things about Orwell is that a lot of people want to claim him. It's a, it's a, a, a a phenomenon that's very conspicuous and has often been remarked on, that all kinds of people want to say that Orwell is on their side. So socialists, of course, want to say he's on their side. Um, Neoconservatives want to say he's on their side. Libertarians sometimes want to say he's on their side. Uh, So there are these different interpretations. I would say um, that one of the things that, um, that distinguishes me from other people who write about Orwell is that I think that a lot of Orwell's uh, positions that he took ideologically, his views on capitalism, socialism, and totalitarianism, were very much off the peg views. In other words, Orwell, I think, is um, much less original than many people take him for. He, uh, m- many people see Orwell as um, as a dissenting voice. Uh, as someone, and he liked to portray himself as a dissenting voice. He liked to portray himself as a, a sort of um, outspoken heretic. But actually, if you start tabulating Orwell's views on all kinds of political issues, you find that he's always, and I say that advisedly, always, 100% of the time, he's running with a pack. He's agreeing with uh, a, a a fairly substantial um, portion of left-wing opinion of the time. Uh, and I, I, I should say here that um, Orwell joined the left consciously in mid-1936. Uh, so uh, prior to mid-1936, one would have to uh, qualify things a bit differently. But from mid-1936 on... Uh, that is, until his death in January 1950, you, you can find that Orwell's general views on uh, political matters are very much standard for certain segments of the left uh, at the time. Yeah, so he's not at all the the maverick, I guess, that he's often portrayed as then. Right. Uh, I mean, he, he has, a, he has a, a rhetorical technique of presenting himself uh, as 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 being this kind of um, dissenter, the person who can see that the emperor has no clothes, that sort of thing. But actually, um, that's a bit misleading. 
you know, and uh, I mean, I could, I could give chapter and verse on all kinds of things, you know, his views on this, that, and the next thing. Um, you will always find that, that he's in agreement with um, a major segment of British left-wing opinion in the 1930s and 1940s. Right. So um, would it be correct to summarize kind of your, your description, which I think is, is strongly supported and compelling, of Orwell's main political beliefs, kind of along the terms of he's clearly in favor of socialism, at least after, I guess, 1936, and he's in favor of socialism not in the way that the word is often used today to mean like maybe some sort of Keynesian mixed economy with a generous welfare state, but in the sense of outright state ownership of the means of production and control of virtually the whole economy. So right. he, he favored that, like socialism in the old school sense of the word. And yet he also was trying to believe in concepts like democracy and civil liberties and was at least seemingly somewhat oblivious to the potential tensions and contradictions of these beliefs? Well, I think that's basically right. Uh, I mean, I, uh, oblivious wouldn't be, would be a bit strong. Mm. Uh, I, think, I think that, um, yes, uh, people, in the people who called themselves socialists in the 1930s generally did not mean uh, Keynes in mixed economy or anything like that. And Orwell himself says explicitly several times that by socialism he means basically um, a society in which uh, the government owns everything and everybody's a government em employee uh, and people get roughly equal incomes paid by the state. Uh, now, he, al he also says that uh, socialism has to be equalitarian, uh, you know, that, that, that there shouldn't be great disparities in wealth or power. And he also says that socialism involves um, democracy and civil liberties. What I do in the book is I take something that Orwell, a terminological distinction that Orwell uses a lot of the time, but not completely consistently, and I use it completely consistently. And that is that uh, collectivism is the term for a society where the government owns everything and everybody's a government employee uh, with a salary paid by the state. And socialism is a particular kind of collectivism which has um, equality and, um, and civil liberties. That would be Orwell's position. Now, as to how oblivious he was, I think, I think the, the thing is this. Orwell became convinced that collectivism was the immediate future. Uh, that is to say, not that it was a good idea or that it was worth uh, recommending, but that it was absolutely inevitable. He, uh, we, we could go into the reasons he thought that, but he definitely came to that conclusion uh, when he became a socialist mid-1936. So he thought that some form of collectivism was absolutely inevitable. This wasn't a matter of a choice at all. It was coming. And um, he, he, he was worried that this might automatically be a totalitarian system. And that, was, that preoccupied him. He was concerned that uh, he, he hoped that socialism, as, uh, that collectivism would be worthy of the name socialism, as he understood it, which means that it would retain civil liberties 
freedom of uh, freedom of association, freedom of expression, and so on. Um, <clears throat> and I should say that to us today, this sounds as though he must have been obtuse. Uh, but <clears throat> this was the standard British left-wing view in the 1930s. I mean, what happened in Britain was that in the 1920s, the old Liberal Party was replaced by the Labour Party. Uh, so that there was uh, two, the two party, one of the two parties in the two-party system switched. So the Conservative Party continued, but the, the opposition party became the Labour Party. And the Labour Party was explicitly a socialist party. It had a, a, a platform, it had a, a constitution that called for the common ownership of the means of production, distribution and exchange. And people who supported the Labour Party called themselves socialists. So it's very different from the US where the word socialism was in, would be in bad odor in respectable company, you might say. That n nothing like that in Britain. One of the two main parties was uh, an avowedly socialist party. And the people in this Labour Party, were I mean, virtually 100% of them would say to you quite sincerely that uh, they wanted to nationalize everything uh, and that they would preserve civil liberties, that freedom of speech and freedom of association, freedom of assembly would continue and in fact would be enhanced because the, would they, uh, these freedoms would no longer be distorted by the big monopolists and the, the, um, the, the big capitalists throwing their weight about. It, the, you know, everything would be on a level playing field and there'd be even more freedom than there was under capitalism. So, uh, you know, on that point, Orwell was in line with uh, with half the population of Britain, you might say, mm. um, at the time, or at least politically uh, aware uh, population. But he did he did begin uh, to worry that um, that this might be impossible and that collectivism might mean totalitarianism. Um, so um, that's something that explicitly he addressed and. Uh, uh, so there's something slightly distinctive about his view there. Um, now, he wasn't the only person to do that, but um, the, he, so he wasn't unique. Uh, but certainly uh, the great majority of, um, of socialists in, the, in Britain in the 1930s would, would have said, oh, yeah, well, why should why should we get rid of civil liberties just because the government owns everything? No, that, that doesn't follow at all. Whereas Orwell began to have his doubts. Yeah, and I, I guess a book like 1984 would be probably uh, a pretty clear expression of those misgivings. Right, right. No, uh, the thing, the, the tragedy is uh, that Orwell hated totalitarianism. He understood it very, very fully, I think, partly because it, of other books that came out, like Darkness at Noon by Arthur Kersler, um, which showed an understanding of totalitarianism. Um, and um, he, he was concerned that that uh, that collectivism was absolutely inevitable. He didn't think there was any choice. Didn't think that capitalism had a hope of surviving. Um, it was going to be abolished and it was going to be replaced by government direction and control. Um, and uh, he was afraid that this might uh, uh, lead to the kind of society that you see in 1984. Why did he believe that it was just completely inevitable that capitalism wouldn't work anymore, wouldn't sustain anymore, and that collectivism of some form was inevitable. That's an interesting question, which I do go into in, in my book. First of all, there was a standard left-wing theory 
that that was generally accepted, and you can find it in um, in Marx's Capital, Marx's book Capital, which is that, roughly speaking, is this: there's a te- strong tendency for big firms to beat out small firms in competition. Therefore, competition leads to its own abolition. It leads to bigger and bigger firms, not just in absolute terms, but as a proportion of the total economy. And therefore, the ultimate tendency of capitalist competition is to lead to one big monopoly owning everything. And um, so this is one of the one of the powerful sort of tropes of leftism at the time is if anybody started talking about competition, they would be uh, dismissed as hopelessly naive. Don't you know that competition destroys itself? Uh, and cr- automatically creates monopoly. So that so that was the standard view, and generally speaking, Orwell accepted that standard argument. But he had other arguments for why, additional arguments for why the collect, uh, collectivism was bound to replace capitalism. Um, <clears throat> one of them was that workers would always workers had the vote uh, in a capitalist democracy. Uh, workers would always tend to prefer security to uh, liberty. So measures which gave more security to the population would uh, tend to prevail in the long run. And therefore, gradually, uh, there would be more and more state intervention to guarantee security. Uh, And this would be another mechanism that would lead to uh, would lead to um, the government controlling everything. So those are two arguments that he accepted. There's also a, there also uh, there's also another argument, although it's not spelled out very clearly, that Orwell believed that that the age of the machine somehow uh, um, dictated the vi- a victory for central direction. Uh, he's he's not very um, it's not very well spelled out. It's 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 a bit hazy, but he does. It's clear that it was an argument that convinced him. And uh, in one of his rare references to anarchism, uh, he says that he's reviewing a book which says that uh, we can have anarchy by an anarchist that says we can have anarchy and uh, high living standards. And Orwell says, well, this is this is out of the question because high living standards involve modern technology. Modern technology involves central direction. And so you can't have uh, an, uh, an anarchist society. An anarchist society can only be a poor society uh, because it goes with technological backwardness. So that's another argument he had. So, and I, I mean, so those are three arguments he held. But also, that, you know, it was the prevailing view, and there is a tendency for most people. Um, remember, uh, Orwell died at the age of 46, and who knows what he might have thought if he'd lived to be 90. Uh, But um, there is a tendency for intellectuals to accept the prevailing views. You know, today, the vast majority of intellectuals think that there's a problem of global warming. Although if you ask them about it, you find that they can't tell you the first law of thermodynamics. So so there is a tendency for fashionable views to to, to have a a great great force. And um, I think that you know, that in itself, even if Orwell had offered no arguments, it wouldn't be a mystery. There wouldn't be something very puzzling about the fact that he accepted this idea that capitalism uh, dis- uh, destroys itself by creating monopoly. Right. And then once World War II was actually going on, then he also had the added 
argument of collectivism is necessary in order to defeat the Axis powers, right? That's right. That's right. He's, I, uh, he thought that, um, you know, in the early in the early part of the war, <clears throat> which uh, to an American means before the war, because this will be the period when it was just Britain and France against Germany and before Pearl Harbor and also before the, the German invasion of Russia. You know, in, the, in this early period, there were a lot of it, a lot of striking German victories. And uh, Orwell said, you know, at the time, well, this shows the superiority of a planned economy over capitalism that that um the the third reich uh, all well completely accepted um by uh, n- by no later than early 1940 and maybe earlier uh that 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 the german third reich was rapidly moving in the direction of bolshevism it was becoming more and more like the soviet union the soviet union was a more extreme form but the whole world was moving in this direction, and uh, the Third Reich was was therefore. Uh, he actually says in, in one place a socialist system, and it's bound to be superior. He thought at organizing for war than uh, than a capitalist system where there's all this competition and all this messy private property and so on. You know, uh, I mean, Orwell, Orwell didn't know much about economics. Um, and, yeah, yeah, um, that's that's what I was going to say. It, it doesn't seem like. It's likely that he ever ever encountered, for example, anything from the Austrian school, um, you know, anything from from Hayek or Mises or the earlier Austrians. Right. Uh, I mean, he, uh, as I say in in my book, he must have heard about this. There are various ways one can show he must have heard about it. I mean, one way is simply this: that one of the one of the most influential books. Of the of the thirty of the on the left in Britain in the thirties was the coming struggle for power by John Strachey. John Strachey was someone who um, put the Communist Party line. The Communist Party wouldn't let him join um, <laughs> their party, uh, but he but he loyally preached their line. But he was a brilliant persuasive writer, um, and uh, the coming struggle for power is very uh, very um, uh, persuasive. And shows many of the assumptions that people, all people right across the left, would have accepted at the time, including Orwell. But it, it's also um, quite fair, in, and it has a section on Mises and Hayek and Robbins, these uh, these free market people, and he deals, you know, deals with them reasonably fairly, but explains why they can't possibly succeed because capitalism doesn't develop in that way. Uh, so, from that book alone, Orwell must have um, must have known. Orwell must have known that there were people who argued in favor of um, laissez-faire capitalism um, and who said that the future didn't lie with uh, or didn't necessarily lie with collectivism. Um, But he obviously was given reasons for rejecting that view without examining it closely. Yeah, I found it very interesting that Orwell's view on you know, socialism, collectivism, actually being very innovative and productive and modernizing, that this remained constant even from back in his early years when he was not a socialist, and how that that assumption that socialism would be productive and innovative and so on was it, it was it was even part of his reason for opposing socialism before he converted to it. That basically he had the opposite of the main reasons. That people might oppose socialism today, like you or I, you know, we might oppose socialism 
on the the sort of Austrian school grounds of what it does to the economy and and those sorts of things. So he initially opposed socialism because he believed it would lead to greater technological progress and innovation and prosperity. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I I found that very interesting. One, one, uh, one sort of, there are different ways of illustrating this, this thinking. Um, but one way is to look at uh, Brave New World, which a uh, book by Aldous Huxley that came out in 1932. And Orwell's immediate reaction to that was he was very impressed by it and more or less agreed with it or thought he agreed with it. And then um, after a few years, he began to say, I'm going to write a book like that. He, the word dystopian hadn't come into use yet, so he didn't call it that. But he said, I'm going to write a book of that sort but it's going to have completely different conclusions. Now, if you look at Brave New World, although people don't often use the word in connection with it, what it depicts is a socialist system. Uh, you know, the, everything's owned by the government, and, and, um, and one of the striking things about it is that it's, um, in many ways, very attractive. It's, everybody has a high living standard, um, and everybody's wants are very well catered for. Um, and... Um, <clears throat> You know, the shocking things about Brave New World are things like um, controlling um, genetic engineering of humans and um, conditioning people by playing messages to them in their sleep and all that sort of thing. Um, but there is no, it's clear that Aldous Huxley, when he wrote that, it never crossed his mind that maybe, you know, uh, a socialist system wouldn't be able to deliver the goods, just wouldn't be able to provide this kind of affluence. Uh, you know, that never crossed his mind. And in fact, me- in many writings of the time, you find that people think of the Soviet Union as being a kind of illustration of what a socialist institutional structure would look like. But technologically, they look at the latest developments in the United States and they assume that those two things go together. Uh, they, of course, they never had gone together. <laughs> uh, and right. We know there are good reasons why they never could. But that was that this was a common view, you know, that, the, uh, well, the, the Soviet Union's having difficulties because of its backwardness and uh, and uh, encirclement by hostile imperialism and so on. Um, all the all the usual excuses. But, um, you know, when it's up and running properly, uh, then it will it will be delivering the most advanced kind of technology. And that's what you see in the most advanced parts of the United States. So Orwell completely shared this this view. Yeah, which I I guess could be traced back to maybe a generation earlier, people like H.G. Wells and the Fabians. Right. um, Which, how would you characterize Orwell's relationship to the Fabians? Well, it's what is a slight, slightly easier question is his relationship to H.G. Wells. Right. Um, yeah. I, I, uh, I really was interested by that section of the book where you got into because, that. Yeah, because he often he often refers to Wells. And um, in fact, H.G. Wells is referred to in The Road to Wigan Pier um, more than any other writer. So first of all, the general picture of H.G. Wells uh, this part of the argument of my book is that socialism suffered a great intellectual defeat in the in the 1880s and 1890s, and this gave rise to a something a phenomenon that I call post-socialism. Lots of intellectuals uh, in the early 20th century 
they were post-socialists. That's to say they, accept, they accepted everything the socialists said about capitalism, basically. But they said that it's naive to place your faith in something like socialism. They, they became disenchanted with the, uh, with the hopes that had been placed in rationality and progress. So this, this, um, this def intellectual defeat for socialism, instead of leading to a return to classical liberalism, instead of leading to a search for some other, something that would be better than socialism, it led to a general um, disenchantment with progress and rationality. And this is this is the current of thought that we that we call fin de siècle, uh, French for end of century. And in the English-speaking world, you see this very uh, very uh, clearly in the reputation of H. G. Wells. H. G. Wells, up until about 1920, was beloved not only by um, a general intelligent readership but also by intellectuals in the strict sense. Um, but in the 1920s, the, the opinion of intellectuals turned against H.G. Wells. Um, it's partly because he was, he, was writing, he was writing books like Men Like Gods, um, Modern Utopia. He was writing positively optimistic visions of the future instead of pessimistic things like War of the Worlds or the Island of Dr. Moreau. Um, so it, that's part of it. But it's also just this idea, oh, we, we, we are too grown up to believe in these, um, in these optimistic visions of the future. So Orwell imbibed all of this. So before he was a socialist, he was a post-socialist. It's like a paradox, <laughs> but it's, it's fairly, fairly simple. Uh, but basically he had imbibed this fantasy ideology that springs from the setbacks that socialism had uh, in the late 19th century. So, so Orwell, in, in, and you can see this in, in uh, the remarks about socialism in the uh, Keep the Aspidistra Flying, a novel that uh, Orwell wrote in 1935, uh, published in 1936, you know, where it, he's clearly anti-socialist and um, so this is this is what's going on. That um, and of course, Brave New World is itself seen at the time as an anti H. G. Wells book. You know, uh, yeah, H. G. Wells has given you men like gods and a modern utopia, but it's really going to turn out shockingly like this. So um, so Orwell comes to socialism reluctantly, converts to socialism in 1936. Um, with all this baggage of, um, of uh, sort of distrust of any talk of progress and rationality. Um, and, um, you know, so this explains a, a lot of his thinking. Now, if you're going to broaden it to the, the Fabian Society, I mean, the Fabian Society didn't really have a distinctive view of socialism. The, 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 Fabian, the Fabian's uh, view of socialism was not strikingly different from members of the Labour Party or, um, you know, members of the ILP or other organizations. And, um, uh, but, and, and of course, there was diversity on specific issues. Uh, you know, H.G. Wells and uh, George Bernard Shaw were both Fabians, but they, they, they came to blows, figuratively speaking, uh, over many issues. I mean, one of, one of the things that I point out is that the conception of socialism, the definition of socialism, 
was fairly un- uncontroversial in the 1930s. Um, that so, it, there was a, there was a standard definition of socialism and a standard uh, conception of how socialism could be established. And so when Orwell discusses his conversion to socialism and what it means to be a socialist in the second half of the Road to Wigan Pier, um, he, you know, he's he doesn't waste any time uh, talking about disagreements there might be. He, he never mentions different conceptions of socialism. Uh, and in fact, that's one of that's one of the surprise. If you if you read 1984 and Animal Farm, and you, that's all you know about Orwell. And then you hear that he was, despite having written those two books, he was a socialist and say, oh, that's interesting. And you come to uh, read his other writings. One of the things that's a bit surprising and a bit striking is that he has no interest whatsoever at any point in details of how socialism might be made to work a a bit differently. You know, he he just pays no attention whatsoever to questions like that or, you know, whether there should be... um, uh, local democracy or uh, uh, um, workers' control of factories never crosses it. Ne- you know, never utters a sentence on issues like that. He just he just takes uh, the definition of what socialism is to be set in stone and uncontroversial. Yeah, and it seems like another tricky aspect of trying to nail down Orwell and something that really I sort of knew about it before reading your book, but then I realized it was even more uh, pronounced than I had thought was how Orwell multiple times on, on pretty important issues did a very fast uh, 180 on those issues did a, did a very fast turn around yes. on, on, on a lot of important things, sometimes literally in the space of a few hours, it seemed like. Yes, right, right. Uh, yeah, th- this is a th- this I think is a source of many misunderstandings of Orwell. That he several times made a, a, a an enormous change, radical change in his outlook, uh, almost instantly. Almost uh, you say you say within a few hours. I mean, it's within a few minutes actually. Yeah. <laughs> in some in some cases, um, you can pin it down to when it, when he made this change. Um, I mean, the most the most uh, clearly demonstrable example is um, what happened in the early hours of uh, August twenty second, nineteen thirty nine, where Orwell had a dream. He woke up from this dream. For the last two years and two months preceding this, he had been taking an anti-war view of the coming war with Germany and actually calling for uh, forming an underground organization to sabotage the war when it started. And um, it, this is a view that's often called a pacifist view, but that's actually not quite accurate because many of the people like Orwell who held this view had nothing against physical violence at all, but that what, they, what, they, what they were objecting to was physical violence by one capitalist nation against another capitalist nation. You know, they were taking the... Uh, the the old socialist view that the workers have no country and and that wars between nations are simply capitalist disputes and the workers should oppo- should oppose them so so it's not a pacifist view but it's usually called pacifism so he went to bed on August twenty on the night of August twenty first nineteen thirty nine a so called pacifist that's to say bitterly anti war and um, 
Uh, and it's not it's not like a casual throwaway line. I mean, he explained this in, in great detail uh, over and over again that um, that uh, one should not support this coming war with Germany. Um, but it would be just like the First World War, where we, the workers were asked to kill, slaughter each other uh, to defeat um, Prussian militarism. Uh, now they were being asked to slaughter each other to defeat fascism. And this was just a, the trick of the ruling classes. Um, and that the, the, this coming war had to be stopped and sabotaged at every turn. Uh, so he has this dream in the early hours of the morning of August, uh, August 22nd. And he wakes up and he says, I knew, well, he dreamed that the war had started. He doesn't say anything else about what happened in the dream. <laughs> but he says that um, uh, he knew when he woke up that he would support his country in the coming war. Uh, so this is literally an overnight conversion. And, from, and, and then, so now he spends the next several years constantly and vituperatively attacking precisely the view that he had been putting for the previous two years and two months. <laughs> now he becomes the arch jingoist and the arch supporter of, the, of Britain against Germany. Um, uh, at, while, uh, while at the same time saying that we can't possibly win this war unless we have a socialist revolution. Um, so, so, uh, so this is his view. And interestingly enough, um, he, he, he had this dream. This is what he says. He had this dream. He woke up convinced that he would be a patriot. He would support Britain against Germany in this war that everybody knew was going to happen. And it happened Less than two weeks later, the, uh, the uh, Hitler invaded Poland and the war was on, basically. He came downstairs, having made this momentous change in his uh, political ideology, uh, and the newspapers had the headline of uh, Ribbentrop's flight to Moscow, which everybody knew meant that the Third Reich and the Soviet Union had entered into an alliance. And that, um, of course... One of the consequences of this is that Orwell and the Communist Party switched their positions on almost precisely the same day. <laughs> um, the Communist Party switched from being very pro-war to being very anti-war at just the same time that Orwell switched from being very anti-war to very pro-war. <laughs> so um, uh, this is the ironies of history. Um, so, um, yeah, so... Yeah, that, that, that's, that's the most easily demonstrable example of this, of this uh, tendency that Orwell had to, for sudden conversions. Yeah, you know, I was just going to say, I, I couldn't help but think when I was reading about that, that it's a real pity that he never had a compelling dream that convinced him to um, be in favor of the free market. Right. Um, <laughs> that's too bad. Yeah. And, and uh, who knows? I mean... You didn't hear much about the free market in the 1930s in Britain, believe me. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, probably if you read um, Strache's rather sympathetic treatment of the free market people in The Coming Struggle for Power, which is a piece of communist propaganda, that's probably <laughs> the most that, many, that a typical leftist uh, in Britain would have heard about the free market. I mean, there were, there, there were a few people like Ernest Benn who were still writing, um, you know, pro-individualist, pro-free market uh, books, but nobody took them seriously. Uh, now, Orwell, uh, in 1944, uh, reviewed Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, which, um, it, which had just come out and which uh, 
it, it, in a way, marks the the revival of classical liberal ideas. Uh, and it's it's a very slight review. It's short, and it's a joint review of of Hayek and a, a book by a communist fellow traveller. Um, so uh, so it's not even even this small review is not entirely devoted to Hayek, but he does understand what Hayek's getting at. Um, and it, it's, uh, he, he, he tacitly, uh, Orwell's quite good as a writer at saying one thing, but tacitly sending a slightly different message. And, um, what he's, what he says here is that the, 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 the there are these two books. One is, one says that laissez-faire capitalism, uh, is going to lead to terrible things uh, that would be this book by the fellow traveler Connie Ziliakis. Uh, and then uh, the other one says that the move away from laissez-faire capitalism can lead to terrible things. That would be Hayek's Road to Serfdom. And he says um, the tragedy is they may both be right. <laughs> so that's, there you get Orwell's pes- that's the first. That's the first paragraph. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, this Orwell's pessimism about the future and the, his idea that maybe totalitarianism is going to triumph anyway. Now, so he does. So he says very little about Hayek, but what he says, he sends the message tacitly that the Hayek book is much more interesting than the Ziliarchus book. Uh, And he says it's he says that, you know, this is an interesting book because it's so unfashionable, Uh, which is a typical Orwell piece of rhetoric because it gets you curious about it. He wants he wants people to read Hayek. uh, You can tell. And but he says, um, you know, the problem with uh, with competitions is that someone wins them, which is that remark is something is a remark that Orwell made several times. uh, And he makes it in this review of Hayek. Uh, so, in other words, that's this, a, a, a succinct statement of the leftist dogma that um, competition destroys itself and creates monopoly. So you, it just can't last. But, um, but and then he mentions the, his theory that uh, people want security and so they will vote in uh, more and more government regulation. He mentions that as well. So, uh, But, you know, um, Orwell died at the age of 46 and... Um, if he'd lived a more normal lifespan, who knows what he might have uh, come round to. Hmm. Yeah, and and then there's his rather abrupt shift on the topic of anarchism, where prior to becoming a socialist, he, I think, sometimes referred to himself as a Tory anarchist. Right. Which, if memory serves, I think, I think Tolkien referred to himself in those terms or was referred to by someone else in those terms. Yeah. Um, but – then he pretty abruptly not only abandoned the Tory anarchist label, but really kind of abandoned any sympathy whatsoever for for any sort of anarchism. Uh, how and why did he have a shift like that against anarchism? Right, right. <clears throat> I mean, the thing the thing is this: um, it wasn't that he wasn't sympathetic to anarchism; it's that he thought it was just hopeless. You know, it was part of this. Um, Something happened to him, it, to his thinking, in the, the, in the years, say, 1934 to 1936, that convinced him that collectivism was inevitable and that to talk about um, uh, sort of um, small property holdings having a, a role in the future, for example, uh, you know, uh, was just hopelessly naive and childish. You know, I, I think that um, Orwell t- 
tended to find himself in agreement with anarchists. Uh, he had friends who were anarchists. And of course, when he was in Spain, when he was in Spain for nearly six months, um, Spain was distinguished among all countries in the world by having millions of anarchists uh, in its population. So he was a, he was aware of anarchists. But, you know, if you read um, his book about Spain, his experiences in Spain, Homage to Catalonia, one of the striking things about that is that he never discusses anarchism. Uh, he, the, he, just, he spends a few sentences pointing out the difference between the way communists see the world and the way anarchists see the world. But basically, he's, you know, it, co it comes back to this idea that um, he has no interest in the, in the minor details of socialism because he thinks that this coming collectivist society uh, is set in stone. It's not, it's not something that we can de uh, debate about. So, you know, he just thinks that anarchism is out of the question. And that, um, it, you know, it, you've got to face it. Orwell had this conceit that he called a power, his power of facing unpleasant facts. Um, and he liked to th he he liked to think of himself as someone who could face unpleasant facts. Um, one of the aspects of this is that when he adopted a point of view, he would keep on mentioning some problem with that point of view. It's one of the attractive things about Orwell in a way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so he, he would have a point of view, but then he would mention, always mention the, 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 the problem with it. Um, and um, so, you know, the, so, and, and the, he put this down to um, his power of facing unpleasant facts. I mean, I think most of the unpleasant facts he prided himself upon facing were actually falsehoods, but but um, this this is some, this is part of his view of the world. And incidentally, um, it is reported that Orwell called himself a Tory anarchist. That's pretty well documented. But in none of his extant writings does he call himself a Tory anarchist. However, he does call someone else a Tory anarchist. And that happens to be the author who had the biggest impact on Orwell of any other writer. And that is Jonathan Swift. Right. Uh, he, call, he calls Jonathan Swift um, uh, a, a Tory anarchist. He act, Orwell actually wrote an imaginary interview that he's conducting with Jonathan Swift. And of course, Jonathan Swift um, uh, in Gulliver's Travels is a big enemy of progress and science and mathematics. Even. <laughs> Basically, this interview that Orwell conducts, imaginary interview that Orwell conducts with Jonathan Swift, is uh, an interview of Orwell interviewing the earlier Orwell. So it's mm. it's uh, it's it's actually Orwell. I forget the I forget the exact date when he wrote this interview, but it's you know it's during the war, um, and uh, it's Orwell in the 1940s uh, interviewing Orwell in the 1930s. Uh, and of course, what happened to Orwell was that after he became a socialist in 1936, with very anti-progress and anti-machine views. He gradually moderated those anti-progress and anti-machine views. So in a way, on that respect, he became a, a, a more typical leftist because most leftists were very positive about economic growth. Well, we, what we would call economic growth, that wasn't part of the language of political discourse then. But um, uh, in Marxist terms, the, uh, the, the advancement of, of the forces of production so, you know, Orwell thought of, um, uh, identified this Tory anarchism with his earlier anti-progress views. 
And so you can see there, it, it, it's all keyed in with this idea that if, if, you, if you face the realities of the modern world, then it means you face the reality of a lot of central direction. Hmm. Uh, and therefore, anarchism is out of the question. Mm-hmm. Um, on, a, on, a, on a bit different topic, I found your discussions in the book of Orwell's views on kind of manliness and masculinity to be very interesting. And it made me right away think of Ernest Hemingway, who, you know, basically a, a contemporary of Orwell's. And um, the parallels were kind of interesting. Right. Another prominent left winger, another uh, renowned writer, of course, also involved somewhat in the Spanish Civil War. And right, uh, right. Bo- both of them strong supporters of this kind of old-fashioned macho masculinity sort of ideal. Um, can you talk a little bit about Orwell's views on masculinity? And, yeah. you know, the, these they just seem so the opposite of, like, the present-day left, who, you know, right. the present-day left well, often I talking think- about toxic mas- toxic masculinity and all that. That's all I could think of when I was reading about right, Orwell. Right, right, right. Uh, well, there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, implications here. I'll just touch upon a few points. I mean, first of all, you have to understand, and you do understand, but just to, for the benefit of some listeners who may not, um, that the present-day kind of pro, should we say, gender flexibility view uh, existed in the 1930s, but it was a very small portion of the left. And the left was generally uh, strongly ad- uh, strongly adhered to machismo. Um, so, I mean, I suppose, you know, uh, we, this comes right up to Fidel Castro's concentration camps for homosexuals, you know. Um, I mean, it's, it, it, you know. It, it, yeah, very, very socially conservative, a lot of the, a lot of the old school left. Right, and yeah, uh, and and um, and also there is this idea that um, that capitalism is responsible for this horrible disease of homosexuality, and in fact all sexual perversions. You know that um, uh, it's due to the alienating effects of capitalism and life in big cities and delayed marriage uh, because of the modern way of life. Uh, that um, that we have things like homosexuality. You know, basically, in the medieval village, there was no homosexuality, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, it didn't exist because people married when they were 12 years old or whatever, and, um, you know, they had no problems, so that they didn't spend their time uh, morbidly developing these perversities. So so there is this idea. Now, Part of, part of the thing here is that it, there was a very broad thing that goes beyond the political left of seeing uh, part of this fantasy Eckler uh, uh, re, re, uh, reaction against progress took the form of saying, well, you have progress in some areas, but it, it leads to um, it leads to uh, regress or, or, uh, and um degeneration in other areas. So this was a popular idea at the beginning of the 20th century among intellectuals, that when you have progress, uh, you have um, degeneration accompanying it. So this, this is something that Orwell accepted. He, you know, that, and he, so he thought that one of the things about, and what, one of the aspects of this was that uh, in the 1930s, th- there was this uh, extreme um, concern about the falling birth rate uh, which um, was almost like global warming is today. It, it reached a peak in 1936, and, and then after that it started to um, disappear a bit because of the, the pressing problem of the coming war. Uh, but 
the white races, however you want to look at it, uh, the the um, <clears throat> the white race or the um, the national race, the British race, were not having enough babies. So there's this this perception of um, that the population is not replacing itself, and that this is the, this is part of the degeneration caused by, well, some people would say. Uh, capitalism, some people would just say, uh, n- not so politically motivated, would just say civilization. You know, advanced civilization is inherently destructive. It may look quite good. It provides certain certain uh, sort of uh, n- novelties and uh, um, goodies for the masses. But this, but it's one at the expense of this um, c- tendency to collapse. And part of the tendency to collapse is that people stop having babies. So the so the, these ideas, this is definitely something Orwell completely believed in, the, 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 the idea that um, you have to do something to uh, reverse this collapse of uh, fertility. And one of the things, one of the things he, when it, he mentions occasionally that a socialist revolution, uh, there'll be an immediate increase in the birth rate. And uh, by the way, that's, that's, that fits in with another of his views, which is that uh, this is the facing unpleasant facts category, is that uh, immediately after a socialist revolution, living standards will probably fall. And um, one of the reasons, there's two reasons he says this, basically. One is that uh, a socialist revolution means uh, liberation for the colonies, so you give up the empire. Uh, and it all well believed that that uh, the workers' incomes in Britain were high because of the empire. That's completely wrong, but that's what he believed. Um <clears throat> Uh, the other reason is that people start having more babies again, and that will de- depress their incomes because they'll be um, using what incomes they have to um, uh, to feed their children. So all these ideas go together. The idea of the uh, uh, that capitalism is in is uh, is in this miserable, uh, alienated, um, anti-fertile kind of mode. It creates these big cities where people are lonely and don't get in touch with each other don't have babies or don't have enough of them. Um, and um, that leads to the collapse of civilization, um, uh, if nothing else will. And so, you know, all the, all these ideas are swilling around in Orwell's mind. And um, uh, he, so he, he actually says, you know, that um, he, he gives a list of five uh, qualities that any viable society must have. And one of them is what he calls philoprogenitiveness, which means a high valuation for having babies, uh, that's, that it's absolutely essential for any society that it must replace itself by having babies. And uh, the, this, is a, this is a great danger. Uh, the, the, and the, I mean, this, is, this was a big scare. It was like global warming today in the, in the 1930s. The big scare was... Um, the collapse of fertility and the birth, the birth death, as it was called. So um, Orwell bought into all this. And, um, and of course, uh, some of it is correct. There was a collapse of fertility. And, uh, you know, part of the reason why Sweden is becoming a Muslim caliphate is because of the, <laughs> the collapse of fertility of the, uh, the old European uh, populations. Yeah, well, um, tying back to the the topic of the British Empire, it again seems like an instance where his views were, at least among the left of that time period, highly conventional, because it seems like he basically just uncritically accepted the kind of Hobson-Lenin analysis of imperialism that it's 
simply a- about the mother country overall, um, meaning even the working classes of the mother country enriching themselves, which is kind of a pretty empirically problematic view of what what the empire really did economically. I mean, right, I, my, right. my, view, my view is much more of like, a, I guess, a public choice view. And I, I think that's similar to your view as well, where the empire seems like did provide concentrated benefits to certain special interest groups in, the, in the mother country, Absolutely. but, yes. but not, not a net benefit to the overall economy as a whole of the mother country, right. nor right. a net benefit to kind of the average, you know, working class or perhaps even middle class person right right uh, that, i think that's i think that's right and um though i mean there were people at the time who uh, who pointed out that it that there were real problems with the idea that people in britain were better off because of the empire um you know the, uh, there was a book by norman angel uh, the great illusion which is basically um I think the first ed- first edition was something like 1909, and it was a huge seller all th- uh, f- through the ensuing years. New editions coming out every few years, um, and uh, its basic argument was that um, it could not be financially advantageous for a modern nation to get involved in a war. You know, it's always a, it, w- it was always going to be an economic loss maker to get in- involved in a war, and I think. His argument is quite correct, I think, on that point. Uh, but one of the points he make, that Angel makes is that um, that Britain doesn't uh, derive any uh, economic benefit from pushing around other countries. Uh, this is just a myth. Um, and he actually makes the quite quite astute point um, that, that there was a tendency for the parts of the empire to become more and more self-governing. Um, and of course, some of them became dominions. That's to say, they were completely, in practice, they were completely independent nations. Ca- Canada and Australia uh, were populated by people who thought of themselves as British and that sort of thing. But they're actually, actually, uh, Britain had no control over their policies whatsoever. I mean, and and Angel pointed out that um, that Britain ha- had less uh, power to determine the policies of the dominions than it had to determine the policies of completely foreign countries because it could push them around without, you know, without fearing any, uh, that they would leave, <laughs> leave the empire, uh, or the Commonwealth as, as, as it was called. Um, uh, whereas, um, you know, they, they, when they were dealing with, um, with Canada, they had to be careful because, uh, of course they, they always had the, um, the specter of the American revolution, you know, when, uh, that, uh, if, that, uh, if you don't treat the colonists too well, then they may leave, they may have a, a, a revolution against you. So there's, there's always that. Uh, but, um, there were, there were people who put forward quite convincingly a case against, uh, this idea. Uh, and one of them was Bertrand Russell. Uh, you know, Bertrand Russell in one respect was just like Orwell. That's to say he was, a so-called pacifist who opposed the coming war, um, and then he switched to uh, to accepting uh, that you had to support the war against Hitler. But at the end of the period, or not right at the end, but when he was putting his anti-war position, why why you shouldn't uh, go to war against Hitler, uh, he wrote a book called um, "Which Way to Peace." And one of the things he point he has in there is an analysis. Uh, quite short but it's quite convincing of what of how it cannot be the case that um 
that Britain benefits economically uh, from its empire. Uh, that the in, benefits in the sense that the living standard of people in Britain is would be higher because of the empire. So there were people who pointed who pointed out the, the contrary. But but uh, as you say, Lenin um, <clears throat> that Lenin's theory of imperialism was widely um, accepted in, on the left, and that argued that that the the imperial powers extracted super profits from. Uh, that's Lenin's term, super profits from the empire, and used these super profits to bribe a section of the working class with higher wages so that they would become um, nationalistic and imperialistic. So that was Lenin's theory. And uh, without attributing it to Lenin, this is something that Orwell accepted. And uh, in fact, in fact, it was it was like an obsession with him. Orwell frequently, many, many times throughout his writings, uh, over the years refers to the empire uh, and almost always, maybe always, uh, certainly almost always, he puts forward this idea that workers living standards in Britain are higher because of the empire. And if we give up the empire, he says, we've got to give up the empire. But, but if we give up the empire, workers living standards will fall because, you know, they they uh, they won't be uh, subsidized by the empire. So this is something he just reiterated again and again and again. By the way, uh, one of the, one of the things about Orwell and homosexuality is that people. One of the misunderstandings about Orwell is that uh, okay, uh, this is this is the way that people tend to look at it. They they read Orwell and they find that he has these remarks against homosexuals, um, and they think, oh well, you know, he was a child of his time. And um, Christopher Hitchens says um, Orwell had an involuntary shudder about homosexuality which is what you expect a heterosexual male to have uh, and he was he fought to contain this and, and to subdue it um uh so you know so th this is a so it, you have to hear the idea that being opposed to homosexuality is a kind of fault it's an emotional fault due to an in, in, involuntary shudder now actually orwell was completely blasé about homosexuality he didn't have any kind of involuntary shudder about it he was friendly with people he knew to be homosexuals it, this this was um this was a kind of uh, grand social uh, engineering kind of view that he had hmm. that it that that um that homosexuality was a ba a very bad symptom of capitalism uh, that that was his view um so uh, so you know um <clears throat> If you look at the Orwell's relations with Stephen Spender, for example, uh, Stephen Spender was was very important at the time because uh, T.S. Eliot, somewhat uh, somewhat um, carelessly, gave the impression in a review of of Spender's first volume of poems that he was the future great poet. Of course, <laughs> Stephen Spender is quite a mediocre poet, actually. But but um, but uh, uh, but anyway, so. Uh, a lot of people thought had great hopes for Stephen Spender, and Stephen Spender was um, a lifelong uh, gay uh, uh, and very much involved in all kinds of gay relationships. Um, and um, uh, Orwell, when, in his, when he first had some dealings with Spender, he referred to him contemptuously as that that pansy, that Nancy poet, and you know all these slightly derogatory here anti-gay terms. Uh, but then. He met Spender and they had a conversation and, and Spender had had this brief fling with the Communist Party uh, and then had uh, arrived at a view of the Communist Party, very much like Orwell's after 1937. That's to say, completely, completely and utterly hostile to it as, as being this treacherous, 
you know, anti-working class, anti-liberty anti, um, kind of uh, uh, organization that was completely under the control of Moscow and was completely amoral in its workings. And uh, that once, once Orwell realized that Spender had exactly the same view of communism and the Soviet Union as he did, they hit it off splendidly, and they uh, they often socialized and and you know were happy in each other's company. And the fact that Spender was a homosexual didn't bother Orwell one bit, you know. Mm. So uh, so you know it's you know Orwell had these things. He he would attack um, Scottishness. He would attack Catholics and so on. These groups of people in those days it wasn't considered terrible to make derogatory remarks about an entire group of people right uh, so you know uh, that wasn't considered automatically an evil thing so uh, you know he would he would run down roman catholics uh, in an extremely strong way he, he he's a stinking rc he says in one point about <laughs> in a in a private letter to someone about someone else a stinking rc and that you know um you know the, there was there was this idea in the in the 1930s in england that it was okay to run down whole groups of people. And of course, Orwell ran down the English quite a lot. But when you met an individual, you took that individual on their merits and uh, hmm. you didn't allow your view of the whole group to color your, the way you treated that individual. So that was, uh, it's a very quaint, old-fashioned view that nobody holds anymore, but this is the view that Orwell held. Hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. So bigotry is okay on a macro level, but you need to turn it off uh, right, on a right. micro well, level. I, I, I don't think I don't think it w it was particularly bigotry. I think it's just you know the, the, just the the view that um, that uh, certain broad groups of human beings do have certain characteristics, and some of these you may not like, and it's okay to say that. Mm. Um, you know, um, it, I don't think it, you can say that it was even bigotry. It's it's just uh, a, na a natural human response, I think, mm. unless you have some uh, peculiar sort of um, uh, code of, of ethics that says that you must never do that. Mm. Hmm. Well, um, obviously, Orwell is is nowhere near the the independent mind that he's often thought to be, and obviously, a lot of his views are, in one way or another, problematic, but. Overall, what would you what will you say about Orwell as an author and a literary figure? Is he still worth reading? And do you think that he and his books deserve to be as well known as they are? Oh yes, I I, I mean I think obviously well, everybody knows about Animal Farm in 1984. I mean I think a point I would make about those two books is they were instant huge bestsellers, and I would say this that. Um, if anybody ever writes an instant huge bestseller, it must be because they're telling a lot of people what they already want to hear. Uh, and I think that's true of those two books, Animal Farm and 1984. When they came out and in the succeeding years and, and decades, told a lot of people what they wanted to hear. So they were, they, they were not breaking new ground in the message they, they conveyed. And I think this is true of, um, uh, of all... Um, best-selling works of fiction that have a political component. I mean, if you think about, um, I suppose, the, one of the best examples would be Uncle Tom's Cabin, which uh, was a huge uh, 
blockbuster bestseller when it came out. It, 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 because, and, and, you know, it, it caused the American Civil War, right? <laughs> As yeah. Abe Lincoln once said, when Abe Lincoln was introduced to Harriet Beecher Stowe, he said, uh, you're the little woman who wrote the book that made this great war. That was in 1863, 10 years after Uncle Tom's right. Cabin came out. And um, so it was a very consequential book. It had a big impact on people's views. But the, but the, the impact it had was not that of creating a new point of view that hadn't existed before and converting millions of people to that, but of somewhat accentuating a view that already existed, in this case, radical abolitionism, um, and gaining more, more adherence and more enthusiastic adherence for that point of view. And uh, if you, if you, you know, if you say, what is the message of uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin? Well, the message is something like, this is slavery, just look at it. The message of uh, 1984 is, uh, this is, um, this is collectivism taken taken to the extreme. Uh, look at it. Um, you know, it's it, it, we're not going to get great insights in political philosophy from 1984. Um, uh, but but um, it's it's a powerful work, and it and it it um, very powerfully restates things that had already said, been said by other people, um, uh, and um, it it. Um, was very close to what millions of people already uh, wanted to hear. Um, the same for for Animal Farm. Um, so um, uh, many people read those two books, and then they read some other stuff by Orwell. And actually, um, you know, there's only there's only two books by Orwell that are really bad, and they are uh, the a Clergyman's Daughter is the worst. Uh, there's no re reason for anybody to read that unless they're interested in Orwell as a specialty as I am. Uh, and then Keep the Aspidistra Flying is is um, not as bad as the, A Clergyman's Daughter, uh, but um, it's, not a, it's not an outstanding novel. But all his other books, and that includes Coming Up for Air, a, a wonderful novel, Burmese Days, a novel about his life in Burma, um, uh, his, his book on the Spanish Civil War, um, and so on. All, they're, they're all worth reading. Uh, but then I think if you re read a lot of Orwell, uh, it's the short pieces, the, the, the hundreds of, of short pieces, which um, uh, eventually give you the most pleasure. You know, the many, many uh, short articles, short book reviews, short columns that he wrote uh, about all kinds of issues o over the years. Um, so I think he's a, he's a great writer, but he's not a great writer because he had correct views that nobody else had. <laughs> right. uh, that's the big mistake. People think, oh, Orwell is if Orwell is a great writer, it must be because he ha he had the right opinions when nobody else did. Well, that's wrong in two ways. First of all, his opinions were generally wrong and not right. And secondly, his opinions were generally in harmony with what thousands of other leftist intellectuals and writers were saying at the time. Well, David, it's been a, a very interesting conversation, and I just want to say a big thank you to you for uh, taking oh. the time to chat with me today. Oh, well, thank, thanks for the opportunity to um, sound off uh, uh, with my correct views on everything. <laughs> my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Check out the website, profcj.org, or you can just put in dangerousherypodcast.com to get the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. 
While you're there, you can email subscribe to the site over in the right-hand side. And if you put in your email address there and subscribe, you won't get any spam or anything like that from me. No junk email. You'll simply get an email notification every time something new is posted at my website. You can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter as well. And you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you prefer to consume your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me keep this show going, growing, and constantly improving. One easy way is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to those you think might appreciate it who don't already know about it. And you can also help the show out by leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes, which helps the podcast get ranked more highly. If you would like to help out the show financially, there are many ways to do so. And you'll find them at profcj.org slash donate. And one of the best, most helpful is to sign up to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. And if you pledge a contribution of at least $5 per month or more, you'll have access to bonus episodes that I publish in Patreon available nowhere else, as well as the ability to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, and you can donate via Bitcoin as well. And of course, if you buy things from any of my Amazon affiliate links or my Books affiliate links, go through those links, then do your shopping as normal, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.